The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, last week, I hosted the show, and uh, only about maybe an hour before I went on, I heard the terrible news that Prince had passed away, and I am still in mourning. In fact, I just purchased the the People magazine uh, tribute issue, which is not something I normally do ever. So I'm going to be reading that later this evening. But in honor of Prince, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called getting into and paying for college. So I suppose let's... Let's move forward on that. Uh, For many of you, the final step is really um, upon us, the the final step at least of the getting in process, and that is making the final choice, which can be really difficult. And in our second segment today, we're going to talk more about how you go about making that choice, especially if you have a number of schools that you really like and perhaps they all cost the same. So that issue is not a huge one. Uh, and my colleague, uh, Kimberly Aselta, is going to be here. We're going to talk through that with her. I'm also going to be answering your questions on admissions-related issues uh, later on. But before we get to all of that, we have part four in our tuition reciprocity series. It's actually the final segment in the series. If you're interested in parts one, two, and three, you can find those in the archives. Um, but today we're talking about the academic common market, and I'm excited to welcome back Shannon Vasconcelos, who's my colleague and a former financial aid officer at Tufts University, to talk us through it. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. I will tell you, I am also in mourning with you, and I was just rocking out to the Purple Rain soundtrack in my car just this morning, so I feel your pain. Exactly. It's just, it's a terrible, terrible thing when your icons from your youth pass away, and way, way too early, so. Exactly, yeah. Oh, poor Prince. Anyway, um, let's talk academic common market, and this is um, a tuition reciprocity program. We know that, but it's sort of hard to say what it is based on the title. So what is the academic common market? I know, it's a very vague title, but what it is, is it's a tuition reciprocity agreement among 15 southern states uh, that provides basically in-state tuition for students attending out-of-state schools. So if you live in one of the participating southern states and attend a college in another one of the participating southern states, you might be eligible for in-state tuition if, and this is the big if, you yep. are majoring in a program that is not offered in your home state. 
Got it. So basically, if I want to major in something like English or biology or psychology, I'm probably out of luck. I'm probably limited to my state school if I want to pay the same tuition. Is that accurate? Yes, that's exactly right. Though there are actually about 1,900, and it's shocking that there's that many, but 1,900 academic programs that you can access through the academic common market, but they do tend to be fairly specialized programs. Um, so just as an example, you know, if you lived in Tennessee and you want to study marine biology, well, you know, Tennessee is a landlocked state. They don't offer marine biology at their state schools. Um, so you could study marine biology at University of Alabama, Coastal Carolina, Old Dominion, and you would only pay in-state tuition at those schools even though you live out of state. Um, if you did happen to live, though, in South Carolina that has multiple schools that offer marine biology, but you just wanted to go to University of Alabama, well, then you're out of luck. You know, you're paying out-of-state tuition because the major is offered in your home state. Um, there are Got some it. really, really cool majors, though, that you can access through the common market. I was just reading through kind of a list of them. It's things like you know, marine biology, as I mentioned, petroleum engineering, dairy science, playwriting and screenwriting, sports and entertainment management, music therapy, genetics. You know, there's some really cool kind of unique programs out there. It kind of made me want to go back to school after seeing <laughs> all of these possible majors. Yeah, and not so, so narrow necessarily, right. um, but, you know, somewhat narrow, but not so, so narrow. So that is, that's super interesting. What, um, which states are actually, so you said 15. Can you rattle all 15 off for us? Yes, I can, because I wrote them down. Otherwise, I'd not <laughs> be able to. But it's, basically, it's most of the, the southern states, and when, when I say south, I'm meaning the southeast, uh, the west the Western states has, has their own, uh, they have their own reciprocity agreement that I think you, you talked about on last week's show. But mm-hmm. the ones in the academic common market um, are Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. Those are the states that participate at the undergraduate level. Um, Florida and Texas only participate at the graduate level. Um, And if you were really good and were kind of picturing all those states on a map, as I mentioned them, you may have noticed the one big southern state that I did not mention is North Carolina. North Carolina does not participate in the academic common market. So for folks hoping, you know, out-of-state folks hoping to get in-state tuition at UNC, unfortunately not going to happen. Oh, that is a bummer. That's a pretty big yeah. one to be not yeah. part of it. But I was also thinking as you were talking, I used to live in Delaware when I worked at Penn, and maybe I should have stayed there because <laughs> that's a pretty good deal. Um, it is, yeah. And those are a lot of states. Um, yeah. well, is it every college and every in those states that participates? No, not every college. So first of all, with any of these reciprocity agreements, we're basically talking about public colleges, first of all, yep. because they're the ones that you know, have a differential between in-state and out-of-state tuition. Private colleges generally charge the same amount to everybody. Um, so we're talking about public colleges, and there are it's over 100 public colleges within those 15 states that participate. It's not every single college, um, but it's most of the big four-year state schools in those states. Um, there are some colleges that opt out of the program 
University of Virginia is a big yeah. one. You know, it's a very popular school. It does not participate. Um, Georgia Tech does not participate at the undergraduate level. They do for graduate students, but not at the undergraduate level. Um, so for folks interested in this program, you certainly need to verify that the school you're planning on does actually participate in the program you know, before you count right. on that in-state tuition. So it sounds like, at least in those two states, the, the two big flagships are not participating, which I think seems to be fairly common as we go mm-hmm. through these tuition reciprocity um, deals. I mean, they have too much interest yes. from out-of-state kids, right, to be offering in-state. Exactly, yeah. They, yep. For these schools, the incentive to participate in the program is it's, it's a way to draw out-of-state students in. And for the big flagship universities that get tons of out-of-state interest, they don't really need to use this as a recruitment tool. They get plenty of applicants as it is. Exactly. Okay. So what do you have to do to apply to get in-state tuition? What are the steps a student has to take? Yeah. So first of all, you should definitely go to the Academic Common Market website to verify what schools are eligible, which programs within the schools are eligible. Um, so the website, it's the website of the, it's called the Southern Region Education Board. So the website is sreb.org backslash academic dash common dash market. So that will get you right to exactly where you want to go. If you just do a web search for academic common market, it'll get you there too. So you Got can it. search on that website um, by college. So if there's a particular school that you really want to go to, you don't really care what you major in, um, you could see kind of what majors are eligible at that school. Or what I think works best for most people is you can search by major. So if there's a field of study you really want to go into, you can search by major and see what colleges offer that major and are in the program. So definitely check out the website first. But there's actually nothing you have to you know, submit through the website or anything. The actual kind of technical first step in the process is simply to apply to that out-of-state college that you want to go to, declaring that eligible major that's not offered in your home state. Once you get accepted to that college and that major, that's when you contact your home state's uh, coordinator for the academic common market. Uh, and the each state's coordinator is listed um, on the website. Um, you apply to that coordinator. They verify your residency. They verify that you've been accepted into an eligible program and then they coordinate with the out-of-state school to get you that in-state tuition. Um, So they kind of handle it from there. Uh, And actually, one good thing that that I should probably note is that if the program that you're enrolling in is not listed as an eligible program on the website, but you verified that it truly is not offered at your own state schools, you can apply to your state coordinator to have your program added to the inventory of eligible programs. Um, so if it's maybe it's a new program, it's not in their inventory, you can apply to have it added so you can get the in-state tuition. It does take a little longer, um, but it is doable in every state except Virginia and Maryland. They've actually passed legislation that they're, they're not adding any new programs to the market anymore. You have to stick to the kind of uh, existing inventory with them. You can't add a new program. Um, so that's so, the basic process for, for most colleges. You just you you apply to the college, you get accepted, then you apply to your state coordinator, uh, and they handle the rest. 
And what if, um, is it a competitive process? Is there a cap on the number of -of out-of-state, in-state tuition they'll offer to out-of-state kids? I made that way more confusing than it needed to be. (laughs) (laughs) No, I completely understand the question. And, And the answer is like... So many other questions that you, that you ask on this show is, it depends. It's our yep. favorite answer on this show, I know. So for most schools, it is actually fairly automatic. Um, everyone who is kind of found eligible through this application process is, in fact, approved. Uh, individual colleges, though, can impose their own restrictions, and some of them do. Um, for example, both Auburn and University of Georgia, I noticed, Uh, You can't apply for in-state tuition until junior and senior year of college. So you've Mm -hmm. actually got to enroll in those schools, complete the first two years paying out-of-state tuition before they'll consider you for the last couple years. Um, Auburn actually specifies you have to have a 3.0 GPA to be considered and that they only offer 25 academic common market spots. And it is an academically competitive process to win one. They're going to take the top 25 juniors and seniors who apply. Uh, Everybody else is out of luck. Um, University of Alabama, I know, is another one that does have minimum GPA, uh, SAT requirements. Um, Now, you'll you'll only find those kinds of restrictions really kind of at the most competitive schools or the most competitive programs within certain schools, Uh, you know, programs that are extremely popular. And like we talked about, they have no trouble kind of recruiting students. Those are the ones that are going to impose restrictions. Um, They are the ones that can afford to turn people away. Uh, At most of the colleges in the academic common market, it's much more straightforward and automatic. You don't have much to worry about. Um, but you definitely also, in addition to checking out the Academic Common Market website, do make sure you check out the website of the individual college or colleges that you're interested in to see if they do pose any restrictions because they are allowed to. The Academic Common Market itself doesn't have kind of minimum academic standards, but individual colleges can impose some. Right. So, as with, like you said, um, as with pretty much anything related to college admissions and financial aid, there is rarely one answer that covers everything, and Mm -hmm. a lot of this is going to be researching. What about uh, if you change majors? So you get you pick a particular major because you want that in-state tuition, and then you get there and you don't like it, or you were never really interested, which is always a bad idea, Mm -hmm. but people do this. It's not smart. Um, What happens if then you want to change your major? And I guess, you know, maybe there are probably two scenarios here, not to answer the question for you, but I'm guessing (laughs) the answer is different if you change to a major that is also not offered in your home state versus if you decide to switch to something like English. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So if you change to a major that is offered in your home state, you lose that in-state tuition benefit. So there is a definitive answer to, to that okay, side of the it. question. Um, if you do happen to change to another major that's offered through the common market, which I'd say is probably pretty rare since they are relatively specialized programs, you can reapply and you can be granted um, the in-state tuition again in the new major, but you do have to go through the application process a second time. But yeah, if you change to a more kind of common major that's offered in your home state, you absolutely lose the in-state tuition benefit. Got it. All right. So we're 
coming up against our time limits here, but what if, um, you know, you get the discount, can you still get other financial aid, other outside scholarships, all that other stuff? And to go back to my usual answer, it does depend. <laughs> um, so for, do I start, have I started sounding like a broken record yet? Um, so nah. for, for need-based financial aid, I would say, yes, you can absolutely get need-based aid on top of the, um, the in-state tuition discount. I haven't seen any schools restricting that. Academic scholarships are a different story. Um, that is a school-by-school policy again. Um, but I definitely have seen some of the common market colleges restrict scholarships for out-of-state students getting the in-state discount. I've specifically seen it at um, University of Alabama, Birmingham, University of South Carolina, and I'm sure it's the case at many, many other schools. They actually say that you cannot get both the common market tuition reduction and an academic scholarship. They'll give you whichever one is worth more, so that's nice, but Mm -hmm. they won't give you both. Um, so, again, check the college's websites because they'll all have their own policies on that. You know, and to me that makes a lot of sense because what they're really trying to do with all of these programs is enroll more students, give more students access to college, and, you know, is it really fair if one student doubles up on a couple of different programs and another student doesn't have access to any of them? Exactly. I'm sure it's debatable, but um, right. very quickly, one Southern-ish state um, that we didn't mention today, and I was just curious about, is D.C. Uh, Can D.C. residents participate in this program? No. So Washington, D.C. doesn't participate in the academic common market, but it actually does have its own special discount program. Um, Since D.C. residents are not actually residents of any state, they're not eligible to get (laughs) in-state tuition anywhere other than there is one public college, University of District Columbia in D.C., but limited options. So they've developed their own special program where residents of D.C. um, can get what's called the D.C. Tuition Assistance Grant, um, which gives them a $10,000 a year grant at any out-of-state college to offset the out-of-state tuition rates. Um, so that's an awesome, wow. awesome deal for D.C. residents. Um, they also have the option to take instead a $2,500 per year grant at any private colleges in the D.C. metro area, any officially designated historically black colleges or universities, uh, or also any two-year colleges. So they get a lower discount if they opt for, for one of those options, but $10,000 a year at any out-of-state state school. So that's an awesome program also that you can, if you live in D.C., search for uh, – DC Tuition Assistance Grant. It'll get you right to their website. Awesome. Shannon, as always, so much really great information here. And um, hopefully for all of our listeners who are living in some of these southern states um, or DC, some good information that you can take and use and maybe get a much less expensive college education and yet still get to leave home for, and go a little ways away. So thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Uh, So don't go away, because when we come back, we're going to be making the final choice, or we're going to be talking about how to make that final choice when we come back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, We're going to be talking about making the final choice. So one of the big things that's going on right now for every high school senior who applied to college, they got their decisions back and they are literally in the final days of making the decision about where they're going to go to school. For some people, it was super easy. They got into their top choice. It was affordable um, or they negotiated a better package. If you're wondering how you can do that, go to our archives. We've been talking about that um, in a few different segments over the course of the spring and they're done. That's easy. But other students, and we see this all the time in our work with families, um, are really struggling to make that final decision. They have a few different options. They like them all or they're somewhat ambivalent about them all. Uh, in a perfect world, they like them all, but that's not always, always the case. Um, and, and one of the things we do a lot of is helping students to figure out that choice. So today... I'm excited to welcome Kimberly Aselta, who is my colleague uh, here at College Coach, but also did admissions at Babson and Holy Cross to help us or help you think about how, how do you make this choice. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. good. I, I actually, this year, I don't have any kids struggling to make a choice, but I have in the past. And how about you? Any of your yes, students? I do. I do have a couple kids, actually, and we're really getting down to the wire. So this decision is to be made in about two days. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No big deal. Just, you know, no where you're going to spend the next four years, right? Right. Right. Um, 
it, this is the moment where I think students and parents both wish that they had listened when we said, you really need to research the school. You got to visit. You got to make sure that you really like it. Why is it on your list if you don't like it? Well, I'm just going to throw it on there and see what happens. Exactly. And I think, you know, visiting, we're running out of time now for the visit for sure. So that's, the I think, the most important thing. And Visiting when you're admitted is a little bit different than visiting when you're just trying to figure things out, when you're trying to figure out, is a school, does it meet some of your criteria? Might it be a good fit? Will I end up applying? It's a lot different when you go back and you're an admitted student at an admitted student day. So I hope that that would be the first thing people would do is go back and revisit those places all of those admitted student open houses are done at this point, but yeah. I really hope that people do go back and visit. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to students and they're deciding between a couple and maybe there's two that they just, just didn't go back to see. And I think it's important to do that as an admitted student. Yes, certainly if you're undecided. I mean, it is. it can be a lot and it can be expensive. And so maybe you can't see every one of those. But for those of you who are listening who are not facing this decision today, mm-hmm. you might want to build into your budget uh, going back to see maybe two or three schools, depending on what the options are. Um, we don't in- endorse the idea of not visiting before you apply, seeing where you get in and then going to visit. That's a whole other show. Right. And a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I do think, you know, point taken, that should be step number one in trying to make this choice. What next? So it is a little late to visit. If you haven't done so, there are still lots of things you can do to figure it out. What are some other suggestions that you offer your students? So people are always asking us in College Coach to compare departments which school is going to be better if I want this particular degree, Mm -hmm. Um, which one is maybe ranked higher. They always will say something like, which one's the best for this? And then I always put it back to the student to figure out what best means for them. And that means you've got to do more research. I can't tell you what's going to be the best department for you. So because we're ready for the time, but the internet is there. You can go to each school's website and really drill down into the department or the couple of departments that you might be interested in possibly selecting a major or a minor in. So things to look for, I would look at the department's philosophy on whatever subject it is. Mm-hmm. For the professors, what are they interested in? What are they doing research in? How many professors are full-time versus part-time? How many of those people are actually teaching you in the classroom? Are there opportunities for internships? What have students done with that major after graduation? So really drilling down into the majors, you'll find that a couple of schools that have the same exact major by name might have some very different core requirements required or some different Mm -hmm. angles that professors are coming at those uh, different topics at. So I think trying to really drill down in what academic department might be the best for you, making sure that the school that you choose has a number of different things you'd be interested in studying, not just one. We talk about that a lot. We talk about finding the schools to which you'll apply. If the same thing holds true, you can't just pick a school because it has a major you think right now you're interested in, you've got to have some other options just in case you decide to change. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, one thing I remember doing way back when, not intentionally, but was sort of looking through, um, there was a giant course catalog at my school. And of course, it was not online because not to show my age, but it wasn't online. That didn't really (laughs) exist then. Um, And flipping through and knowing somewhere in the back of my head that I would likely be an English major. And I had a real fascination with poetry. And so kind of looking at and seeing that AA Um, A.R. Ammons, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, taught there and was still teaching there. I could take a class with him um, if I went uh, to that school and looking at the other people who focused on poetry and seeing that there were a lot of options, whereas on another school's campus, there may not have been anybody teaching poetry or really focused on it. So maybe there would be a couple of classes, but not much in that area. And that might not have been the best fit for me. Exactly. And then also looking at the core curriculum, too, outside of majors, minors, what's required? Because that could take up close to a third of your time there in the classroom. So are these courses that you might be interested in? What types of things, what types of courses can you choose from within that? Are you given choice or are you not? That's a big part of this as well. Right. What about, you know, outside of the classroom? So inside the classroom is, should be priority number one, but I think priority number two, when you're going to spend a lot of money and going to go away to school, if that's what you're planning, what you get involved in outside of the classroom can often be just as impactful to your life there as what you're doing inside the classroom. So is there anything that you recommend students do on that front? Yes, and I actually think people don't spend enough time thinking about this. There are so many times when I have a call with a student who's maybe considering a transfer because... They made the decision to go to the best academic school, what they deemed the best academic school for them, and really didn't give much thought to anything else. That was what made the decision. Remember a student just a couple years ago that I was talking to that was pretty active in theater in high Mm -hmm. school and had decided that's not really what he wanted to do with his life. He didn't want to major in that, didn't want to find a career in theater, but ended up going to a school and totally disregarded looking for any options in the theater department and went to a school that really didn't have much of a theater program. Mm. And then as a freshman realized, Oh, this is, I'm missing this. This is who I am. This is how I relieve stress. This is how I make friends. This is, this is what I did. This is who I was. And now I can't be part of it. And and there's, there's really no way to be part of, of anything that had to do with theater at the school that he had chosen. Great school, again, academically, was doing great in the classroom, but just really wasn't finding his group of people, his friends, and what he wanted to do in terms of theater outside of the classroom. So taking the time to look beyond just how many clubs and organizations are there, but what are the clubs and organizations? How easy or hard is it for students to get involved? I always tell students, now that everything's out on on the websites, you can usually go in and see what the campus activity calendar looks like. What's going on on campus? What bands are coming for spring weekend? Is that a band you'd even want to listen to? What's, yep. What speakers are coming? Are they doing productions, musicals, dramas, you know, dance productions? What's going on on campus? And are you interested in doing any of that? So really making sure that beyond just this school has 50 clubs, would you, be in, would you want to be involved in any of those clubs? Right, Making sure exactly. that there's something that you're going to be doing outside of the classroom. 
Right. And, you know, there may be lots of really interesting options that are totally new to you, and that's great and fine, Mm -hmm. but you want to make sure that they are interesting to you before you just say, oh, well, who knows what I'll find. I'll figure it out when I get there. There's no excuse for that anymore because you have the internet. We didn't ha- I didn't have the internet. You have it. Make use of it. Right. Right. <laughs> really. You can get lost in some in these schools websites and really drilling down to see find out lots of different things. And I agree. You know, I think college is a time to go out and do something new and different. Just make sure that those new and different things are things you actually want to do. <laughs> so Exactly. Make sure that if you- those options are there. Exactly right. If you're a city girl and you love the city and you go to a school where all of the clubs are organized around outdoor activities, like in the woods, you're probably not going to be happy, even though they're brand new to you. Right. All right. Moving on. What about um, things like, you know, what happens after college? I do think sometimes when you think about college, I think a lot of parents are thinking about after college. I'm not sure as many students are thinking about that. So what are some things you encourage students to look at related to that? Yeah, and when I was at Papson, we were really good about telling students, you know, a little bit about the return on investment, right? So thinking about the graduation rate and how many students are employed six months after graduation. I think those are all great things to look at. Also thinking about what companies come onto campus. You know, we had a career fair where hundreds of companies came onto campus to interview our graduating seniors. The same for internships. What are those companies? What types of positions are students being hired to come in and do? In what industries? Where? Is it more Mm -hmm. regional? Are they going across the country? Are there some students being placed globally? I think that can also be kind of tricky because sometimes students and parents are making decisions on because this company, this particular company is recruiting here, then we know that's the right place. You don't really know exactly what you're going to be doing after graduation, but I think it's telling when you can see that a school is making sure that their students are being exposed to companies and companies are coming in and, and familiar with the graduates and with the school. I would look beyond that, too, to see what the career counseling office actually does for students to prepare them for their career, not just that first job, that first position, but are they preparing students with beyond how to write a resume and a cover letter, how to network? You know, are there things that even sophomores, second-year students, third-year students are learning about how to network, how to use their network, how to use social media, and, and how to really, internships, how to find those, those skills that are going to help you through your career, not just that first position. But you can find that information, too. You know, some schools are a little bit better than others about being really upfront about it. You know, Babson, we had a sheet that was in our admission <laughs> office. But I think those are important things to think about, what's going to happen after um, right. Four years here. And the only thing I would add is even if colleges are, I think, the, and I think this speaks to what you were just saying, even if lots of companies aren't coming to campus to actively recruit, um, often you can find out where alum are going to work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly they're getting jobs. Where are they getting jobs? And just, you know, it's great when the companies come and recruit on campus and there are lots of places where they do that. And then there are lots of places where they don't, but that doesn't mean if Goldman Sachs isn't recruiting on your campus that you can't get a job there eventually, right? right? So that's important. We're running, um, I have, I want to kind of skip to, I think finances are pretty key here. Um, Obviously, if you have a few options and one is more 
um, you know, easier for your family to afford than the others, that, that should be a big factor. And, and as a family, that's something for you all to decide. But let's say you have all, you've done all your research, you have everything in front of you, and the answer still hasn't emerged. As a parent um, or as a friend, how, how do you help the student kind of make some decisions once all the research has been done? I know. And I was that student. I, I remember begging my mother to make the decision for me. And huh. she turned to me. This was the first time she'd ever said this to me, but this is all you. This is your decision. So I think parents do need to lay out, you know, especially with finances, that's the big piece. But other than that, you know, this is your decision. Um, students really need to do a gut check. And we've, we have a, a colleague that, that has students flip a coin. And mm-hmm. as that coin's in the air... Before the the person says it's heads or tails, was there a school you were hoping it was going to be? That can be right. really, that can be telling. Um, writing out a pros and cons list, and then starring all the things that are most important. Maybe seeing which one has the most stars. You really thinking about this um, in ways that where we make lots of other big decisions. Sometimes, I found too talking out talking this all out with someone who's neutral. I had mm-hmm. two calls this spring with a student trying to make a decision, and the student talked for about 15 minutes about both schools, and then I was silent and said, to me, I think the decision is made. It sounds to me like you want to go to this school. And the student just sort of laughed and was like, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> so sometimes we feel like this is such a big decision and you're making it, but you really may have that decision already made. And talking it out with someone, it can become very, very clear to that neutral person what you're right. thinking. And I think the key there is finding the right neutral person, right? So you, generally speaking, that's not going to be a parent or a sibling right. or a friend. It's, I don't know who it's going to be, but it's probably not any of those people unless you have someone in your life who's close to you and yet has the ability to completely remove themselves from the equation right. and remove maybe what they know about counselor, you. Mm-hmm. Maybe a teacher. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in a perfect world, maybe someone who knows nothing about either school, so they can mm-hmm. sort of let their own biases creep in there. Um, because I do think that it's hard not to. Um, you know, when, when the students who I've been working with for a while, a year, two years, three years, come to me with a couple of different choices, you know, part of me, it's really hard for me not to say, I think you should choose X because I know them, I know the school, and I just think I know. But, I, you know, I don't always know. Right. And I like your idea of a gut check. I mean, at the end of the day, as the student, you're the one who's going to spend those four years there. And it, if you can land at the place that's going to be the best fit for you, that's, that's the best thing you could do for yourself. And a lot of the students I've been talking to and the couple that I'm working with right now, there there really isn't a bad choice. <laughs> right, really, right. I, I truly believe that whichever school um, these particular students pick, I think they're going to be fine. Yep. And they'll end yep. up feeling like it was the right place. Right, because in the ideally they probably did do a good job early on and then they had a list of schools that all made sense for them. And that is right. really where it all starts. Um, and if you're curious about that, any of that stuff, um, we have a lot of uh, segments in the archives around putting together a list, uh, choosing schools, um, and in the early stages, how to narrow down your list and finalize it. And if you take those steps now, then this part will be ideally much easier. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining today. No problem. Thanks, Beth. 
All right. Well, after the break, we're going to be answering the questions that you sent to us. You, our listeners, and thank you so much for doing that. Uh, So don't go away because we're answering them as soon as we return. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are um, really excited because we got so many listener questions in over the past month. Um, We answer your questions on admissions-related topics, and then we also do a segment on college finance-related topics. But we got a ton in and I'm excited to try and get through as many as possible. And I'm going to welcome Erica Braley, who joins us every time we do these admissions uh, question and answer sessions to um, feed me the questions. Hi, Erica. Hello. We do. We have a long list of really great questions. I'm excited as well. All right. So why don't we get right to it? Sure. Uh, the first question comes from listener Carol. Um, she wants to know, can we start the common application now? So I'm going to give a short answer and then encourage you all to visit our blog uh, to see uh, a blog which will provide a slightly longer answer. But the short answer is that, yes, you actually can. So in the past, 
the Common App took down the application uh, in June of every year, and then it went away until August 1st when the new application would go up. What they've done is they've created this new sort of carryover where you can indeed start your application now, and then when it goes live, when the application does go live on August 1st, you can link, you know, you can sort of turn that application you've been working on into your actual application. Um, so there'll be a, a little step there. I'm not going to try and walk you through it right now, but it's enough to say that you can actually go in, create an account, and start working on the application. And the only other thing I would add is that you have always been able to work on the essays. And really, filling out the application does not take typically a lot of time. Uh, it's the filling out the activities section and then writing the essay. That's really the thing that you're going to want to spend some significant time on, particularly the essay. Um, so you can always start on that. The prompts are already out for this year, uh, so there's certainly nothing stopping anyone from working on their essay at this point. Great. The next question comes from listener Ada. Ada wants to know, is attendance at summer enrichment programs, especially those where college credit is earned, valued as part of the acceptance process, and if so, how much? So basically what we're talking about here in many cases is more school. So students spending the whole school year in school, taking classes, and then spending part or all of their summers taking more classes and basically doing more school. So what I would say is, as with kind of anything in the admissions process, it certainly can be a positive part of the application, and sometimes it can be a, eh, okay, whatever, part of the application. I really think that summers are an opportunity for students to pursue, to pursue their areas of interest. So if you have a student who's interested in engineering and um, they really don't have an opportunity to study engineering in high school, but over the summer, maybe they're going to do a one or a two or a five or a six-week engineering program that's going to introduce them to it. They're going to get a lot more exposure to it. That could be super valuable for that student from the perspective of determining if engineering is the right path and also showing the colleges, hey, this, this interest is real. I really do... Um, Want to want to pursue this in college, and by the way, I kind of know what I'm getting myself into. Um, but to simply do a course over the summer because you think colleges are going to like it, that is really the wrong reason to do these types of programs. If you have something else, an internship, a job, um, you, you know, something else that's more intriguing to you then I would say that's likely to be more impactful on your college applications. Um, I think a lot of times one big mistake that students make is thinking that, well, I really want to go to X school, and X school offers a summer program, so I'm going to do that summer program, and therefore I'm going to be more competitive at that school. Um, the vast majority of colleges offer those programs because it's a way for them to continue to have students on campus and to use those facilities at a time when ordinarily they wouldn't be used at all. So in essence, it's a money-making opportunity. Doesn't mean they're not valuable programs, doesn't mean students won't learn stuff, but, you know, that's really what they're there for. And um, generally speaking, it doesn't help you at all in the process to have taken a class at Stanford over the summer, then Stanford's not going to say, well, we really want her because she took a class here over the summer. Um, it's not going to hurt a student, but it isn't going to help in the way that I think a lot of families um, are convinced that it will. So I guess what I would say is these 
programs tend to be very expensive uh, and often are really just more school. So unless it's allowing a student to really explore an area of interest that there's no other way for them to explore, uh, or it's a highly selective program where there's an intensive uh, acceptance process and a lot of kids apply and only a handful get admitted, um, if it doesn't really fit those criteria, I would say then it's no more or less interesting than um, something else that you could do, in which case not necessarily the most impact. Great. Next up is Laura, and Laura writes, My son suffered a back injury the summer before freshman year. He had to stop all of his sports activities, including travel hockey, high school sports, and these were a big part of his activities. Is there a way to relay that info when it's time to fill out college applications, explaining the reason for the drop in activities his freshman year? So two things. The first is, yes, absolutely. Uh, On the Common App, there is a section called Additional Information, and you'll actually find something like that. It could be called Additional Information, or it could just be uh, called something else. But basically, there's generally a place on every college application that cares about activities uh, for students to explain something in their record that might be a question mark for an admissions officer who is reading the file. Uh, So in some cases, that could be explaining this, you know, hey, I had a back injury, and therefore, the things that I was involved in before high school, uh, I wasn't able to get involved in when I arrived in high school. Um, My injury really prevented that. Um, Maybe it's a student explaining uh, a move. You know, maybe you were in one school for half a freshman year and then you transferred to another school. Um, You might want to explain briefly a couple sentences, a paragraph about what happened and why the transfer occurred when it did. Um, Anything you think the admissions office might have a question about, uh, the place to answer that question is in that additional information section. I guess three things, really. The, the second thing is there is no need to fill out anything in the additional information section if you don't have anything to share. So if there isn't anything that you need to explain, leave it blank. Absolutely leave it blank. I get this question every year, and every year I tell people it is only for you to explain something. Uh, it is not for you to add another essay or, you know, try to come up with something else that you want to add to your application. Admissions officers would far prefer to see that left blank than have you add something extra that they haven't asked for. The third thing is, for a student where this happens, you know, where they suffer an injury and then something that they've been really active in is no longer part of their lives, um, it's really important to get involved in other things. So it's likely that a college will appreciate that the student wasn't able to do high school sports or play hockey anymore, but they are going to be saying, okay, well, so what did you do instead? Um, So that's going to be an important thing as well. Our next question comes from Molly. Um, She has a question about essays. She writes, my daughter will be writing hers this summer and wants to write about her overcoming her dyslexia to the point where she has had all A's in high school and high ACT scores in the 31 to 33 range. She is being recruited by top Ivy schools as an athlete. It's a big story for her, requiring countless hours of tutoring and practice. She gets extended time testing. I'm uncomfortable with her sharing this, I think. I wanted to know what you thought. Very, very tough question. Um, We do get this quite a bit, and um, 
I think there are two schools of thought. In this situation, if this is really her story and she feels like if they don't know this about her, then they won't really know her, then, you know, it might be something to write about. My general take on writing about a learning difference or an issue is that unless it's going to explain something on the application that's perhaps not quite as strong as it could be, I'm not always sure that this is really the ideal story to share. Students typically have many different stories and many different things that they could share with the admissions office. There's no way to share everything in a 650-word essay. Um, And... You know, you you don't want, for a student who's an athlete, um, there are going to be a lot of demands on an athlete. So there definitely could be, I suppose, some downside to disclosing that and maybe having the admissions office have a question about, well, you know, can she handle this, the work here at the college level, um, and be uh, an athlete and get all the tutoring that she's going to need that's going to help her to be successful here. So... I think you're right to be concerned. I could never make a blanket statement that she should or should not disclose. The one thing I will say is that if she opts not to write about it in her essay or to disclose it when she's applying, it's super important to disclose after you've been admitted and decided to attend that school so that you can make sure that or she can make sure that she gets the the help that she needs um, to be successful. My, my bet is that she will be successful because she already knows what it is to work hard. Um, but I do think it's a good question of whether or not you disclose and, and you can never, there's no hard and fast rule here. Um, they're not legally allowed to um, hold it against her that she has a learning difference. But, you know, again, it's a conversation. And at the Ivies, there are, a, there's a lot of competition. Um, and, you know, if she's already competitive and she's being recruited and there's another great story that she could tell, that might be um, a better choice, but not necessarily. Um, and unfortunately, I, I, I had great hopes we were going to get through more than we <laughs> did today, but we're up against the time constraints. So um, when we come back and do this uh, next month, we'll just uh, start where we finished off today uh, and answer some more of those questions then. Um, so thanks, Erica, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and thanks to all my guests today. A few important things to note before we wrap up. Uh, Next week, I'll be back. We're going to be talking about PG year, a postgraduate year after high school between high school and college, and not really a gap year so much as actually going to school and taking classes. Um, We're also going to be talking about what it's like to be an international student here in the U.S., and we're going to be talking to a student who um, did that very thing. So she came from abroad to study here in the U.S., and she's going to give us her perspective. Um, We're also going to be talking to uh, one of our college finance experts about um, what you need to think about after you've submitted your deposit. So it's not as simple as just sending in the deposit and now you're done and you show up on campus uh, in late August. There are a lot of things you're going to be thinking about over the course of the summer. Um, Also, don't forget, 
and Erica was instrumental in this, but we have a great new blog. It's redesigned. It's searchable. You can also sign up to receive uh, the blogs whenever we post something new, and you can find that at getintocollege.com forward slash blog. So definitely check that out. Also, visit our archives. You can sign up for free downloads of the show on iTunes. You can visit the archives on the Voice America site. There's so much good stuff in there. I can't even mention it all in the time we have left. Uh, If you do go onto iTunes and download us, please rate the show while you're there. We need more ratings. Um, We hear from you that you love it, so we'd love to see that reflected in the iTunes ratings. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.